Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program, where we're going to share some exciting offers and opportunities, and please feel free to share this with people who you know will also find it of interest. So today, if you've been following the news, now the U.S. has gone through its midterm election, and the fallout of that is still being discussed. But just to, just a week before, Israel had its own its fifth national election in three and a half years, unprecedented, and we've actually had more or less a conclusive result for the first time in three and a half years where there's actually a prospective government that's being formed under the leadership of former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who's now coming back to serve in his third term. How did we get to this point? How how did Israel even begin to have five elections in three and a half years? And how were these undecided and that we had to continue to have elections? And how is it that when the issues haven't changed very much, that now all of a sudden Prime Minister Netanyahu is slated to come back. And what will be the result of his forming a new government that's arguably the most right-wing and religious government that Israel has ever had in nearly 75 years? And today to have that conversation, we have two extraordinary expert guests who are joining us. So now I am thrilled to introduce our panelists. I feel thrilled and grateful. First, Carrie Keller-Lynn is a political correspondent with the Times of Israel. In addition to covering the Knesset, Carrie has reported on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, both from Ukraine and Poland. Formerly in the U.S. with McKinsey and Company, Carrie previously applied her background in strategy and policy implementation to the Israeli health ministry's fight against COVID-19. While completing her JD and MBA at Stanford, Carrie's work focused on creating opportunities for disadvantaged communities and pro bono legal work for asylum seekers. Before Carrie, before Carrie was at Stanford, she uh, attended Yale College and has, has a bachelor's in philosophy. And, more, and most recently, before serving at Times of Israel, working at Times of Israel, she served as the Israeli military liaison to the Egyptian army. That's fascinating. And I look forward to getting together and having a cup of coffee and learning more about that among the things that make you as uh, qualified and interesting to be on the panel. And I'm so grateful you're here. Rabbi Dove Lipman is a former member of Knesset from almost 10 years ago, having been a member, and maybe still a member, you can clarify that, of the Yeshatid party, who was, and he was the, not anymore, and was the first American-born American born member of the Knesset in nearly 30 years. He was raised in Maryland and moved to Israel the same year I did in 2004 with his wife and four children. His rabbinic ordination is from the Ner Yisrael Rabbinical College in Baltimore, and he has a master's of education from Johns Hopkins. He's the author of eight books about Israel and Judaism and is a widely respected columnist for the Jerusalem Post and Times of Israel 
and is a political commentator for ILTV and I-24 News. Most recently, uh, Rabbi Littman was the founder and became a voice on behalf of so many immigrants from uh, all the spectrums uh, of Israeli society as founder of Yad Olim, a voice in the Israeli government and the broader society for new immigrants or vitter, even veteran immigrants from all backgrounds. Um, Carrie and Rabbi Littman, I am so thrilled to have you here. Um, welcome to the Inspiration from Zion podcast web- webinar. <laughs> Pleased to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So Carrie, as I mentioned at the outset, um, it's probably been one of your least slow news weeks uh, in in uh, in your journalism career. Um, I suspect that you haven't had a lot of rest. Certainly, the past week, the last months during this uh, during this political campaign. What did you think before the election that you would be covering, that you would be writing about, that you're surprised that's actually something that you're not writing about? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think I'd have to to step outside myself to answer that because people usually ask me what are the consequences of this election. We'll get to that. Um, <laughs> uh, I think the issues that people care about right now um, within Israel are very much what this next government will look like, who's going to get which portfolio, et cetera, because those are the issues that really will domestically influence Israeli life. Because our audience at the Times of Israel is about 90% foreign and we write in English, we have a bit of a, a global hybrid view. And we're looking a little bit more into the issues that um, I'd say concern both global Jewry and, and the international kind of arena. And those issues are much more around uh, democracy, rule of law, the judicial system. And so I, I never thought that once I left my law career behind, I would be spending so much time speaking about judicial reform, which is a topic that makes people's eyes deeply glaze over, uh, but might prove to be really important on a, a number of levels here. So I think the the thing that I haven't written about yet that I'm about to perhaps this week would be uh, what potential consequences of reforming the judicial system, specifically in the ways that are being proposed, might be for the future of Israeli democracy as well as uh, Israelis themselves. Very significant. And there are a lot of issues being discussed as the negotiations for the coalition begins and some of the party uh, parties have made some very uh, declarative statements as to kind of judicial reform that they want. We'll look forward to getting whatever article you write and being able to share it uh, with our with our viewers and listeners. Um, Rabbi Lippmann, you 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 were a member of Knesset. You were a former member of Yeshatid. What you, you, things are happening now? You were you were in that uh, almost ten years ago with the with the beginnings of a new government and serving in Knesset after the 2013 elections, what insight do you have as to why Yair Lapid and Yeshatid might not have been as successful as they aspired to be? So it's very interesting. There are times that your success can actually lead to your downfall. What do I mean by that? Um, certainly, there was a goal when Yair Lapid set up Yeshatid's party in in 2011, 2012, to eventually reach the leadership of the country. And uh, you know, people have asked me this question because I obviously know him well. Uh, his intentions are very much for the sake of Israel. He doesn't need any of this. Uh, he was rated as the most popular Israeli before he got involved in politics, but certainly had. Uh, money, fame, uh, but he really felt like he could lead Israel in a certain direction. He was given 
the premiership in a kind of a caretaker government, an interim government uh, until the end of these elections. And I know for a fact that the people, that he himself, but the people around him really felt that the very fact that he was in office, he was traveling to the UN, he was making a peace deal with Lebanon yeah. or an agreement with Lebanon, he's meeting world leaders on behalf of Israel, showing the gravitas of prime minister, that that would be enough to perhaps sway even Likud voters or right-wing voters to give him a chance to continue. And as a result, the party very much left what got us into office to begin with, which was basic retail politics. Uh, Yair Lapid is an incredible campaigner. Uh, he spent morning, afternoon, night going to events, all of us as members of the party as well. And there was a little bit of lack laying back from that approach. That's part one and part two of that was not making sure that everyone in his center-left coalition was in the place where they could absolutely succeed and get in. If you analyze the results, th there's very small difference between the right wing and the center-left in terms of the ultimate results of numbers of votes. Very, very few. It's, I think, even less than a percentage point. But so many on the center-left didn't cross in, over the threshold to get into the Knesset. For those who are watching, you have to get 3.25%, and they had parties getting 3%, 2.5%. And all those votes then go to waste and are spread amongst the whole electorate. And that's what enabled the right wing under Netanyahu. Everyone made sure, for the most part, to get in. And even the one that didn't get in, they didn't care about so much. And on the center-left, that didn't happen. So the combination of resting on their laurels a little bit and not making sure that everyone in the center-left block crossed the threshold, those are the two aspects that led ultimately to Netanyahu's very strong victory. So if I wanna agree with you, but also kind of, uh, kind of expand on the point you made, you said that there was about a, you know, a percentage point or so difference between the center-left and the right wing. It's not exactly that story because what that percentage point difference was uh, between the opportunity for Netanyahu to form a government and the opportunity for Lapid to block formation of a government. It wasn't actually clear that Lapid would have the numbers to form a government and, and would he be successful in blocking it would have led to Israel's sixth election probably in the late spring of next year. Um, so this result um, did give a definitive answer to what was then Israel's fifth election since 2019. Um, and for, for better or worse, at least the stability. And I just want to say that this wasn't a contest necessarily, you know, the Hillary versus um, <laughs> Donald Trump contest of, of 2016, which I remember well as I was living in California. Um, this, was, this was a contest between a sixth election uh, and, a, and a government that's, we, we had an answer then. Yeah, I actually want to agree with what Carrie's saying. Uh, the strategy from Lapid's side, which they never would say openly, was let's block Netanyahu and stay as interim prime minister as long as necessary, because he did not have any kind of a path uh, towards the government. And that's important for everyone who's listening to understand. There, it's not as if there are two solid blocks in Israel, the right and then the center left. Uh, the right has shown that they have the numbers you know, for the 61 seat majority, but on the center left, there was no path at all. Um, for Yair Lapid to form a government and anyone who held hopes that maybe he'd bring in all of the Arab parties and they all join the government, that wasn't going to happen for both sides of the equation. So I very much agree that his strategy was block Netanyahu and then continue uh, as prime minister in the interim. But let me ask, let me dig a little bit deeper. If the strategy was to block Netanyahu from forming a government and then continuing serving as prime minister in a caretaker capacity, is there 
in in either Yair Lapid's thinking or in anyone's thinking that then you'll have six months, eight months, nine months of grace to build a government. At which point there'll be a new uh, to 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 gather uh, steam and then and then have the um, gravitas or ability to form a government. Or is that an endless cycle? Absolutely, that's the game. I mean, we were in an endless cycle. Um, what really determined it this time was voter turnout. Likud had about over a million Israelis come out and vote for Likud. Uh, religious Zionism went from 5% in the electorate to close to 11% electorate. Uh, what happened in the last election is that Likud lost 21% of its voters. It lost 285,000 Likud votes, while almost all of the other parties went up in votes. And so Likud this time really focused on its ground campaign, did exactly the things that Dove pointed out that Yeshiti did not focus on, incredibly raised uh, voter turnout. Our voter turnout was higher this year um, than it's been since 2015. So in any of these, these past five election cycles, and consequently was able to, to clinch an election. Um, I think that had we moved to a sixth election, there would have been extraordinary pressure on the Likud to choose a leader who was not named Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, given that Netanyahu has been the reason why we had an ideological majority, but not a political one for uh, the better part of three and a half years. And that would have given Yair Lapid to both build more time in the prime ministership, he's only been sitting there for four months, um, as well as hope that Likud voters would be even more exhausted by the prospect of yet another stalemate and perhaps decide to stay home. If I could just add one point to what Carrie's saying, um, there's three points that actually led, from my perspective, to those Likud voters coming out and the religious Zionist voters coming out, which didn't happen last time. One is the fact that Netanyahu was no longer prime minister. The interim prime minister was the other side from their perspective. I think in past elections, there was a feeling of, well, he's the interim prime minister anyway. Why do I have to bother with this? There's no, there's no feeling of, I need to go out and do something about it. He's going to continue. That also played a role, by the way, in Netanyahu's ability to have the freedom to campaign every single moment of the day. He was no longer prime minister, right. the opposition leader. And he, he literally was able to spend every moment out there campaigning. And he's really, really good at that. And then the third element was they could actually point and say, from their perspective, look at the damage the other side has done to really get people out of their homes, to be able to say, and again, I'm quoting what they were saying, to say they're destroying the Jewish nature of the state, to say that they're joining together with Arab parties that are dangerous to the state. For the ultra-Orthodox parties, they could say the cost of living has skyrocketed and just say things to people, look at the damage of the other side, you must come out and vote. And that's ultimately what also brought so many people to the fore. I don't know if statistically, uh, the, the, I, I don't think there's a significant difference in the cost of living challenges in Israel. I don't think there's been statistically more terrorism uh, in Israel. But as long as they could point the finger to the other guy, that was enough to bring people out uh, to vote on these various uh, ideological issues. Thanks for that. Something It's funny you said that, something about him not being prime minister and being able to campaign, which is something that he really is good at. I noticed that a number of the a number of the campaign events he was at, he was standing behind what appeared to be bulletproof glass, which creates the aura of here's the man who's the prime minister, and we need to protect him. But but it's more than that. The brilliance of that move, the brilliance of that move. They say that he got to twenty five thousand people. Instead of having an event that's organized, you have to get people to come out. You have to have all the security in place and all that's involved in that. They had it. It was called Bibi Ba, which means Bibi is coming. He was in this truck. 
that gave him a bulletproof glass and people had actual contact with him. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of people who then told their friends and they just felt a certain connection to him, which yeah. also led to people feeling, okay, I'm going to come out. I'm going to get more people to come out for him. Kara, are you going to say something? I, I was going to say, Dove, did you actually go to one of these events? They were, <laughs> they were quite colorful. Um, you know, I have not. I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, so I, I went to one or two, and uh, they were actually parodied on on Israel's equivalent of of SNL. It's called Eretz Nadela, It's a wonderful country uh, because you know there's something funny about a former prime minister traveling around the country in an air conditioned, bulletproof uh, glass paneled van, right? When his his uh, awaiting crowds are awaiting in the heat, and you know for several hours before he shows up, and then he comes and speaks for five minutes. Uh, but the the enthusiasm in that crowd is absolutely palpable. Netanyahu yeah. is an electrifying speaker. He gave almost the same speech every time he came out. He said, um, you know, I'm so sorry to be behind this glass. He stepped over to where the glass wasn't. He stepped back to where the glass was. He brought some uh, local uh, leaders with him who were alive with Likud. And then he said, go out and tell your friends to vote because this election depends on you. And then he walked off stage and it was tremendously effective. Um, I, I think that there's a reason why Netanyahu, despite the fact that he is facing three separate a corruption cases and he's currently on trial for them despite the fact that he's Israel's most divisive politician who has arguably led us into five cycles of elections he is also consistently Israel's most popular I think the last poll that they did before the election 48 percent of Israelis said that he's the most fit to be prime minister and and this is yes. what we'll see happen yeah excellent point I want to take a break and when we come back I want to have ask you both from your respective insights to talk about before we get into what are the consequences what are the members of Knesset now talking about amongst themselves in their offices on WhatsApp? What I like to try to get to the pulse of what actually the people who have been elected are having a conversation amongst themselves about. But let's take a quick break. If you're like most people in the world, you know about the Holocaust, but never met, much less interacted with a Holocaust survivor or heard their stories of suffering and survival. With the remaining elderly survivors, dying at an unprecedented pace, in less than a generation, there will be none alive. Yet, while they did survive, and for that we need to celebrate them, many still suffer trauma from their youth. As they age, they have increasing needs, and living on fixed incomes, sometimes with no pension, things as simple and essential as basic foods, heating in the winter, medicine, and inflation can push someone over the line from surviving to struggling again. It can create stress in their lives that reminds them of the suffering they endured as young people. It's just not acceptable that anyone who suffered as much should struggle with basic needs or any undue stress in their twilight years. I want to invite you to join the Genesis 123 Foundation to bless the survivors. Yes, we pray that you'll donate personally and do so generously. And when you do, we also give you the opportunity to send your personal blessings and words of encouragement to the survivors themselves to brighten their day and let them feel your love. Having been privileged to provide financial resources to help survivors on a day-to-day -day basis, I know it makes a difference and is very appreciated. But your personal note that we translate into Hebrew, Russian, or Yiddish really makes them smile and warms their heart. I pray you'll join us by going to genesis123.co slash hug a survivor. That's genesis123.co slash hug a survivor. And please share this with others. 
We can't undo the suffering that they endured. And there's no limit to what the needs are, but we can never do too much to comfort them in their final years. Please join us. God bless you. Okay. Um, Carrie and Rabbi Lippman, lovely, lovely, amazing, insightful conversation. I wish we could go on for hours because I already have a sense that there's um, that that much more that we can continue to discuss. The elections took place, as one of you said, it was a clearly decisive victory for Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, for all intents and purposes, it looks like he will be forming the next government, uh, though we're going to talk about the the negotiations going on. But what are the, Dove, you were in the Knesset, you you had this experience. Carrie, you've got the WhatsApp number of probably just about everybody and can reach out to whomever you want. What are they saying off the record? What What's what's the, the pulse? So there's different uh, groups that we'd be talking about. Uh, I'll go to the opposition for the moment. Uh, you know, one of the uh, staples of Israel's democracy is that we have a coalition and an opposition and something which, you know, we certainly didn't necessarily grow up with. I didn't in the United States where you have majority minority, but it's not the same concept per se. Uh, the opposition right now, uh, and this is going to lead to part of the stability of this government, in my opinion, is an absolute mess. Um, you have two of the primary leaders of the opposition, Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz, who are political foes who both blame each other for various uh, failings of their quote-unquote block. You have Avigdor Lieberman, who is the head of the Israel Beitenu party, who despises the Arab parties, the Arab parties who despise him. You have the Arab parties that all hate one another. Uh, they <laughs> them hate one another. And then you have Meirav Mikhaeli, who leads the Labour Party, who everyone is against because they feel that she failed by not joining together with the Merits Party to give their block more seats. So it's basically a very, very big mess and there's a lot of anger uh, one towards the other. There's also, and this I've had conversations with current ministers of this government that's been in power for this past year. They're really upset that they're going to the opposition. They really enjoyed being in ministerial positions. I don't mean because of the honor or the glory. They really felt that they were in positions to be able to accomplish things and it all fell apart. And now they, they're gonna go to the opposition, uh, including some who are even rethinking, do they wanna continue? Just as members of Knesset from the opposition where you very have very, very little impact. That's on the one side. On the coalition side, uh, People are excited. There's no doubt about it. Everyone is jockeying for key positions. I've had uh, numerous conversations. Uh, even people, let's say, especially the females uh, in the government side, uh, people who are far down on their party lists are most probably going to be tapped for minister positions because there's only nine females out of the 64. And Netanyahu does not want to have a government picture uh, that doesn't show a significant representation of, of, of women. Uh, people are trying to figure out what positions they want to have, what committees do they want to head. Uh, that's where their minds are right now. I can tell you as someone who was elected as a newcomer to the Knesset, those who have never been to the Knesset are now going through uh, their orientation sessions. Uh, the Knesset offers them orientation sessions and their own parties will probably give them orientations just to learn what the schedule is all about, how it all works. Uh, having said all of that, there is one conversation which has been put on pause uh, for now, but that conversation has definitely been 
within the Likud party about Netanyahu. Right now, he's definitely the hero, and that conversation is literally on pause. But up to election day, that conversation was, if we don't form a government with him, how do we move him aside so that we can have a strong right-wing government? Right. As Carrie said, there's an ideological majority in Israel for a right-wing government, and by him not being there, that could be formed easily. But for the moment, that's completely on pause, and everyone's just focusing on these next four years of a stable right-wing religious government. Okay, Carrie, what what's your insight? What what have people been telling you? I mean, that was incredibly comprehensive. Um, the only thing I would add is that the level of blame throwing on the the center left, right, however you want to call that big tent outgoing coalition, um, is is really really high. Those are pretty much the only public messages you will see too um, among uh, the center and the left parties, because of course merits for the first time in its 30-year existence was knocked out of Knesset and labor was reduced to only four seats, meaning that the left flank of the Knesset is now four seats. It's absolute minimum. Um, people are very arrayed about that. Again, Mirav Nechayali very, very um, assiduously avoided joining with Meretz. Uh, Lapid did pressure her. There's criticism that he didn't pressure her, her hard right. enough. She actually blames him for Meretz failing because she says that um, Lapid didn't encourage uh, voters to come vote for the smaller parties in the bloc rather than him, the bigger party. Interestingly, in the same speech, she said that while Netanyahu was going to the various rabbis and stitching in smaller parties uh, within bigger ones in the bloc, what was Lapid doing? Well, frankly, Lapid tried to do that and, and Michaeli pushed back quite aggressively and blocked that move. Uh, another thing Lapid didn't do that people are quite frustrated about is he never stitched up um, something called surplus votes agreements, yeah. whereby if you, you know, you get a whole seat in the Knesset, but if you had a fractional seat and you have a surplus vote agreement, you could transfer that fractional seat to the party with which you have a surplus vote agreement. And maybe that adds up to an additional seat to add within your block. Um, there were not enough of those that were stitched together. And of course, what happened when the Arab party split. And, and that's worth explaining uh, for folks who haven't been following that, because we're talking about blocks right now, but there's sort of three blocks in the Israeli system. There is the right religious bloc headed by Netanyahu, which is about to ascend into power. There is this kind of so-called change bloc. Uh, we call it that because it was called the Change Coalition when it came in last year. It is a uh, centrist left, uh, includes right-wing parties, and also includes an Arab Islamist party. And then you sort of have this third wedge of non-aligned Arab parties. Uh, it was formerly held by the joint list. Um, then it split further into Chabash Tal, which is uh, two parties unified as one. And then Balad, which is a Palestinian nationalist party, which didn't make it into Knesset. Chabash uh, Pala now has five seats. It's going to sit pretty again in that on uh, that kind of non-aligned wedge, uh, that going coalition to the extent that you can still call it a block because, again, it did not behave as one and it's unclear if it will act as a block in the opposition. Uh, down to 55 and then or 56 and then we have the, the 64 coalition. So people are very frustrated uh, in the opposition. They feel like it's it's not even a necessarily a team anymore, um, and you know at the moment focusing on the reasons for the loss rather than what's going to happen going forward. Would either of you guess among the opposition of uh, fifty six people, fifty six seats at the moment? That's the pres- presumptive. How many people might say, okay, this has been a nice run, but I'm not going to come back. It's unclear, especially it, it's unclear uh, for many reasons. Um, Netanyahu has said that he would want to pull additional people into his coalition, right. uh, depending on where they sit in opposition, what their ideology is, and what their, their future political uh, prospects could be. Um, there's a chance that Netanyahu might succeed in pulling 
um, pulling Elikim, pulling defectors over to, to his side of the map. Um, it's unclear. I think if, if someone were to quit at this point, Dove, I'd love your perspective on this. I think yeah. it's very hard to, to come back into politics. So it would have to be sort of a final decision. That being said, uh, if Netanyahu manages to control this sort of unwieldy uh, ideological uh, coalition that he's assembled, because we haven't even spoken about what this coalition, um, which unified in its fight, but really has some, some big uh, ideological points of departure, um, whether he, he manages to keep that under control for four to five years, because there's a chance it could be in power for up to five years. Um, you know, if you're, you're in your late 60s, you're looking at that, it's unclear if you want to stick around and play that game. Good point. Go. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I would also divide it. I, the three groups, I think, is really a, a good way to, to go about this. Uh, first, hot off the press, I have given, given information. I can't say it's totally verified, but the source seemed pretty strong that the Ram Party, which is kind of like the Islamic Party uh, that joined this past government that showed an interest in being involved in the Israeli government, has already reached out to Netanyahu, not about being part of the government, but about being supportive of the government from the outside because they were privy to significant budgets in this past government, which they really want for their population. So they've, you know, Netanyahu said not right now, but you know, he'll definitely be open to exploring all possibilities once he has his government uh, in place and all that solidified. That's one group, which is just looking, you know, they want to have budgets, they want to have things for the communities, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in a government that also has a religious Zionist party that said, you know, that had pretty strong words uh, for that group. Again, they said they will not join the government, but they just want to be in a position to get those budgets for supporting the government from the outside. The and other that group, represents almost 10% of the opposition seats. Correct, a significant uh, number. Yeah. Uh, the other group are right-wing members of the opposition, people who were formerly part of Likud, uh, who are you know, some of them very strongly right-wing ideologically, but under no circumstances will they sit with Netanyahu, and they've said so openly. But you know, how are they going to play this now? Because they certainly foresee a time when Netanyahu will move on, perhaps after this term, even if it's four or five years. You know, do they play the role of a very weak opposition, if anything, just to kind of hedge their bets so they can somehow join the right wing again and join a government uh, once Netanyahu isn't there? And then there's people who are staunchly, you know, center left. Uh, et cetera, like the Yair Lapid-led uh, group, you know, he said, we're going to be here, we're going to build an alternative, I'm going to be strong. Uh, the problem is that the numbers at the moment don't really seem to be there unless this government fails. This is an opportunity for this government. And I've even said this to some of my colleagues in the Knesset, you know, it's not a time just to pop champagne and celebrate, but, you know, you're, you're, you've been given an opportunity here and you can really cement yourselves in the leadership for, for decades if you, do, if you do good work along the lines of what you've said. Uh, but Lapid will look for those opportunities to show the failures of this government, even from a right-wing perspective, even to show, you know, they put Israel in greater danger by things that they've done, whatever it is, and try to win people away from that ideology. It's going to be a very, very tough battle for him. There are definitely people, like Harry mentioned, in that group who just are not up for this age-wise, career-wise, 
being in the opposition is really, really hard. It's really hard to wake up every single day and go to work and your job is just to essentially scream against all the things that the coalition is doing. You really can't stop anything. In this kind of a government, there's nothing they can stop. There's nothing they can do. Uh, so that's very difficult. If you're a person who enjoys doing things, accomplishing things, you'd rather look for a job in the uh, nonprofit sector or go into business and, and, and whatever it is, because you don't want to be in that position of just getting up every day with the opportunity to just scream against the current government. Yeah. Four years of that is really really, really hard. Let me ask you, let me, let me digress for a moment. There was one very interesting question. A lot of people uh, tuning in may not understand the nuances of, of the Israeli uh, electoral system. We are all American born. I think if I'm not mistaken, we've all spent most of our lives in America, which meant, which means also probably most of our voting in America. And someone sent a, sent a message and asked, is, well, is, is Israelis system even democratic how would you how would you both respond to that it's democratic it just looks different than the way the american system is much like the american system looks different than the british system uh. or the canadian system um it's is it worth uh explaining how the israeli system democracy plays out i, I can do this very quickly um <laughs> in america all these opinions are pretty much contained within two parties you have a, a democratic party and you have a republican party in Israel, a lot of these identities of who the Israelis are play out across the parties. So we have many parties in this outgoing government, in the outgoing, sorry, Knesset, we have 13, and I think we're about to have 10 come in right now. Um, so you have different tribal kind of like identities and, and um, representing different pieces of Israeli society and the way that they all kind of come to the table and, and get a piece of the pie is at the Knesset and informing the government specifically, because when you form a government, when you're, when you're elected in the States, you come in with an administration, you have all of the heads of the equivalent of the ministries, all the heads of the departments, you put your cabinet in, it's very easy. You don't have to really fight um, for anything that doesn't require uh, a legislative approval for an appointment. Um, in Israel, the, let, the appointments to these ministries are the political capital, uh, which you expend to form your coalition and to form your government as well as to kind of share the benefits uh, with different segments of Israeli society. So this is why these coalition negotiations are so important right now, because this is where the different tribes of Israeli society are coming to the table and saying, this is important to me, we want influence here. This is why Ram is saying, this is important to us, we want budgets that will benefit Arab society and issues that we care about. This is why um, Shas is likely to fight over the Ministry of Interior because it, it helps their base. This is why um, Betzela Smotlich is fighting for the justice ministry reportedly because he cares deeply about judicial reform in this country. And so do a number of members of uh, his supporters. And so this is really how democracy is playing out. It just plays out in a different way. It's not a, a winner takes all sort of sweet model of the government. It's a government that continually has to negotiate with each other based on parties, which represent sort of tribes or factions of Israel's demographic society. Thank you. Um, Dove, anything to add? Yeah, two things I'll say. One is, uh, one could even argue on some level, on some level, that there's you know, a little bit more democracy in the sense that, you know, even the guy who loses is still there. 
my voice is still represented. Uh, even if I didn't quote unquote win, you vote. And if you have the percentage, you get into the Knesset, even if you don't form the government. But I will say that after spending about two months in the Knesset and really being, being there behind the scenes and seeing everything involved, uh, I wrote a letter to my uh, Mrs. Wolf, my political science teacher in high school, and I said to her, Mrs. Wolf, now I understand what you meant by the wisdom of the founding fathers of the United States. Uh, with all the flaws that everyone living there feels about the system, checks and balances, separation of powers, it's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And, and I do, as someone who grew up, who, like you said, spent most of my life in America, and I'm now here, I, I do pine very much for uh, the, the other system where you kind of have that clarity of the separation of the branches and uh, I, 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 the checks and balances, uh, it, it works much better in my opinion. Okay. Good. Uh, we, we were speaking before about the, what, what might be with some of the members of the opposition, particularly those who are over a certain age at a, or, or, or stage in life, and they may just not have the interest in sticking that around. That is speculation. Well, I want to say that. That's all, all, everything's speculation until, <laughs> until both the government is formed and or people decide, which could come two weeks, two months, or, or, or six months later, that people might decide to resign from uh, from Knesset for any number of reasons, they might hold on to their job in in order to look for the next job and and get their salary as a member of Knesset rather than resigning. A lot of reasons why, but I'm really curious. I had a speculation before the election that depending on how it went, and it's certainly gone away that I wasn't expecting, not as as um, bold, that we would potentially see a number of of. C- I, I'm using a judgmental word, seriously could members who really have had enough of being pushed back and down on the list and not getting getting uh, government ministries and the ones that who, who are among the most substantial, not just in the Likud party, but in the Knesset. And I'm wondering, as the government is forming, and, and Dove, you added something that I hadn't considered, the fact that, of course, he has to form a government with a, a, a reasonable number of women, but that's very hard to do when there are only nine women out of the uh, 64 seats, which means some of the men who have stuck it out all these years will be continuing to wait. Is there any possibility that people will break off or say that they're not going to, if they don't get a government ministry that they want, or they're going to move unthinkably potentially but to the opposition and say we're gonna we're gonna take 10 seats to create what's a faction and now become part of the opposition because they're just so fed up i don't see any possibility of what you just described happening of a significant chunk or anybody saying i'll go to the opposition instead um there's such a strong position able to accomplish so much assuming that's done properly and led properly that i don't i don't see that happening um, are there people there? I don't know, one name that comes to my mind, Yuli Edelstein. Yeah. I mean, Yuli Edelstein was the speaker of the Knesset when I was in the Knesset, uh, certainly a person of great prominence, seen as, when I was there, a potential candidate for president of Israel right. down the road being groomed for that. Uh, he announced that he was challenging Netanyahu for the premiership. Uh, and now here we have a government being put together. And I, again, Carrie, you can tell me if you've heard otherwise, but I haven't even heard his name mentioned amongst any of the positions that are being talked about. And that's very hard to see. It's got to be very difficult for him. However, remember that all of them know 
that Netanyahu, as far as they know, will not last as prime minister forever. Uh, they, and every one of these people views themselves as potentially a person to take over the Likud after Netanyahu leaves. Like, granted, they've lost a lot of power. They've dropped, remember, the Likud is a Democratic Party. They've lost and had primaries for their spots in the list. They've gone right. down, very, down very far on that list. But you have people there who I believe will stay quiet, you know, accept whatever they're given, just because of the fact they want to hopefully be in a position to challenge for the leadership of the Likud and eventually the premiership once Netanyahu is not there. And that's enough of a carrot uh, to keep them going, uh, especially while they're in the coalition, they're winning votes, their ideolo the, the ideology they believe in is being acted upon. That's enough for them to keep going and have the comfort of being a member of Knesset in the coalition. Things are happening, give good speeches, you know, get the Likud base very excited about you and hopefully be in a place to contend as the leader once Netanyahu is not continuing. Thank you, Karen, Before you answer, I just want to take a quick 30 second break. And we're going to come right back. When you think of Jerusalem, you probably think of its historic and biblical sites. Run for Zion is a trip unlike any other. You will join tens of thousands of Israelis interacting with Jerusalem as you never have and never imagined you would. You'll connect with and bless Israelis of all backgrounds. If you've never been to Israel and are dying to come visit or haven't been for a while and can't wait to get back, Run for Zion is the opportunity for you. And now, if you register today, you can join us for as little as $29. Yes, that's for real, just $29. Run for Zion is a pilgrimage and service experience that gets you out of the tour bus, interacting with the people and the land. Check out runforzion.com for details and come run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. Okay, Carrie, now you're back on. Um, yeah, I just wanted to bring up another point about Uli Edelstein, for example. Um, he's been so seen as sort of a, a possible uh, successor to Likud leadership that he's sort of been uh, marginalized. I mean, Yuli Edelstein uh, was the only politician who continued to challenge Netanyahu for the leadership of the Likud up until June or July when he was basically pressured by other partners within the party to, to back off and to cancel the leadership election heading into this this last national one, so as not to create more disunity within the party at a critical time. Um, and Edelstein was punished by that for, by Likud voters. He was pushed sort of to the, the mid-bottom of the list. Um, again, anything is, is possible. Uh, might we also remember that when Netanyahu was briefly considering a plea deal to end his corruption cases in January, about five or six different Likud politicians came out of the, the woodwork, uh, in addition to Edelstein, who had declared this uh, previously, and said, no, no, I, I don't want Netanyahu to leave the Likud, I don't want him to leave politics, but if he did, maybe consider <laughs> me as the next leader. Um, immediately all walked back, of course, once he decided not to, to take the deal, but there are so many people chomping at the bit to have their chance uh, at power after Netanyahu's held onto the realm uh, reigns of this party for over 20 years, split over two different uh, terms, the, the head of the Likud. Yeah, excellent. One of the other ones I always look at is, as being marginalized is uh, near Barkat uh, and and thinking that, as a matter of fact, there was a something on the news before the election that that uh, Netanyahu was saying that, that, that Nir Barkat was going to become Minister of Finance. Now, that's always lovely to say before the election, before you know what ministries you have even to negotiate with. Um, yeah, Karen? So Netanyahu's also made this promise to Barkat before. Um, and, and, you know, I was talking to one of his advisors uh, today, actually, and a former advisor of his, and the advisor made this point that you know, he's only been in national politics for about five years. 
Uh, we think of him as as bigger on the stage because he was a very prominent mayor of Jerusalem for about 10 years before he entered national level politics. Um, he still has time. Uh, it's unclear if he's still kind of thought of as the, the next Likud leader. By unclear, I mean unlikely. Um, there's a lot of talk that Yossi Cohen, the former head of the Mossad, is, right. is the current uh, potential you know, uh, inheritor uh, in terms of Netanyahu leaving his legacy to someone. Again, we so much can happen from now until when Netanyahu decides to leave politics. Um, it's, it's hard to, to tell who will be that person. So l- let me pick up on the so much can happen theme. Um, be, before Netanyahu decides to leave politics, but before Netanyahu actually is able to form this this next government. It, it seems like it's going to be Likud with the two ultra-Orthodox parties and the religious Zionist party, um, all adding up to 64 seats. There's a lot of talk about maybe one splitting, maybe some members of, uh, of um, uh, Benny Gantz's party coming in in some capacity. Uh, Dove, you mentioned Ram supporting from outside. What what are the what are the things that we should be looking at in the next week two weeks uh, as the coalition is being formed that might just be outside that straight right religious government? Well, well, the first thing I mean over the next week two weeks is to watch the formation of the government. Both who gets the positions that's number one that's very significant. Uh, you know, who gets the the finance position, who gets the education position, who gets the interior position, et cetera, et cetera. And those things are going to be settled pretty quickly. And then more importantly is the policies. Forget the people for a moment. What policies are they going to have in the fundamental elements of this government? You know, Netanyahu is going to work very, very hard to try to moderate some of the more extreme demands that will be made by some of his coalition partners, and that'll be interesting. Netanyahu, historically, and this gets to your question, always turned to his left to bring in coalition partners. He brought in Ehud Barak, who was left-wing Labor Party. Uh, when we joined in 2013, his first coalition partner was Sipi Livni, uh, right. who was more left, and he brought him in as justice minister. In 2015, he had Moshe Kachlon, who was able to kind of keep things uh, somewhat moderate. He doesn't have that option here in terms of putting the coalition together. So it's very clear he's going to put together the initial 64 with all of these people there. However, will he try to woo People just to broaden it even more as time goes along. He probably will at some point after they pass a budget. You know, people are getting fed up in the opposition. Right. Maybe he can give them some kind of a reason to join. But at the moment, I don't see any kind of urgency for that at all. I don't see it as something which is eminent. Most of the people on the other side are saying, you know, we're not interested in that. So we'll have to see exactly how it plays out. But for right now, what you're watching is who will fill the primary leadership roles, both as ministers and as chair people of the committees, and what are the policies that are going to be in the coalition agreement that Netanyahu will agree to as he pieces together this coalition? Among those four parties? Just among the four parties. And the fact, this is interesting, I mean, and Carrie might know more of the history, but, you know, we're used to the just of these last few cycles, the president hosting all the parties, who are they going to recommend for prime minister? And then after that, someone will get a mandate, they'll get a month, they'll get the ask for an extension. We're not in that story right now. They are trying to form the government by November 15th, when the Knesset is sworn in two weeks after the election. I, I think that might be historic in nature uh, in terms of having that all together. Uh, that's a very different story than we're used to. 
And it definitely shows Netanyahu's intention, which is to govern with this 64. And then if anybody else wants to join in afterwards, you know, we'll see exactly what happens. But the foundation of this government is going to be the ideology of a significant, strong right wing and religious government. Carrie, what do you see? Uh, I, I agree. I think that there's a tremendous amount of urgency. Again, um, this is these are politicians who have been out of power for a year and a half. And for Netanyahu, especially, who is Israel's longest serving prime minister, 12 years consecutively in his last term, last uh, succession of terms, uh, it's been very uncomfortable to be sitting um, in the opposition benches. Um, Netanyahu is historically taking quite a long time to form his governments. Again, as Dova said, everyone has reported that this, this is intended to be a very um, speedy process. Um, I think what is also worth noting is that although the numbers are there for a 64 seat coalition and after the outgoing 61 seat one, it sounds kind of roomy and comfortable to have an, <laughs> an extra three to make that majority in the 120 seat Knesset, but 64 seats is still a very narrow coalition. Um, it means that one party has the power to hold up any piece of legislation, any appointment, um, to, to throw a boycott on something. Uh, and if you remember, we were thrown into this cycle when Netanyahu went from a, a sort of roomy coalition down to a less roomy one and, and basically lost two parties in the course of a month and a half um, that launched us into this kind of cycle of five elections. So having some more space there to, to play with things, to, again, not um, fall on the sword as the leftmost member of his own coalition sure. uh, would become much more comfortable for Netanyahu. Excellent point. Yeah. And uh, and give him, in case someone wants to um, hold his hold him to the fire for some reason. Dove, if, you I can just also mention, if I can just mention that we're talking about it as four parties, but that's actually not totally accurate. It's actually set, it, it, it's two, there's two additional parties. What I mean by that is the religious Zionist um, a faction is made up of three parties that ran together. Uh, they're the religious Zionists led by Vitsala Smotrich. There's Otzma Yehudit led by Itamar Ben-Gvir and Good. Noam led by Avi Maoz. And each one of them is apparently negotiating separately with Netanyahu. So when Carrie mentioned the ability of each party to hold Netanyahu hostage, so to speak, to their demands, uh, you, you know, you start moving to some more, uh, you know, more radical, quote unquote, extreme elements that have very, very firm ideologies. These are people, I want to just remind everybody, Itamar Ben-Gvir uh, and Smotrich also, but they could have been, they could have had a government last time with Netanyahu if he brought in the Ram party, which was definitely discussed. They have strong ideologies. They view this as their opportunity. They had a very big victory and they're gonna make very strong demands and not gonna be simple with Netanyahu. So as much as I, I do believe it'll be a strong, stable government, but don't think that behind the scenes, that's not gonna involve a significant amount of politicking and maneuvering, especially in these next two weeks as they put the government together, trying to, on the one hand, give all these parties what they're asking for, while on the other hand, making sure that you know Israel is not seen or acting in a way which is too radical or too extreme for its desire to be you know, a nation among the nations. Is there any substance to the idea that as, they, as those three parties break away and, and as um, some are particularly focusing on Itamar Ben-Gvir as being um, the, the, the loudest of the extremist uh, element of the party that Netanyahu, if they're negotiating on their own anyway, he might specifically make an effort to go toward Gantt and split up his party and bring six people over to uh, to form a government to say, save me from myself. 
that's definitely the scenario that um that Benver was afraid of before the election. Um, at this point, it seems very difficult uh, to do that. Gantz has already said that he's going to sit in opposition. Again, who knows what will happen? Also worth noting, Gantz and Netanyahu had previously partnered in a unity government and Netanyahu mm -hmm. burned him. Um, Gantz actually broke with Lapid, who was his political partner then, um, to sit with Netanyahu. And Netanyahu ended up uh, sending their government back to elections to not pass the prime ministership on the rotation onto Gantz. Um, so there's a lot of, of bad blood. Uh, there are a lot of um, disqualifications of other parties floating around in this mix. Um, you might bring in one partner, doesn't want to sit in another. Right. Uh, so I, I, anything is possible, but I think the scenario where uh, Ben Gvir is, is booted um, for Gantz will be difficult, especially because uh, Netanyahu has invested so much energy in labeling Gantz and his party as left-wing. And Benkver drove the, the votes for religious Zionism. Yes. Um, I spoke with a number of experts who, who say that although the, the mandates in the party have been split 50-50 uh, pretty much between the parties, it's not exactly accurate. Uh, Smutwich has about, uh, I think, uh, six or seven. There's one to Noam and then the, the remainder to Benkver. Um, Benkver brought most of the voters to the party. Him so and his, his very far-right ideology um, aside, I, he drew a lot of voters in addition who were convinced that he would have an answer for internal security as Israel is very much in, in the middle of a, a long-standing wave of terror um, and very much on the back of these riots that happened in May 2021 when Israel fought Hamas in Gaza, um, riots within Israel between Jews and, and Arabs, something that we haven't seen since the Second Intifada yeah. and really terrified and shocked Israelis. Uh, cannot be understated how much people still have this as a top of mind issue and think that Benkver might be an answer to some of the government's failings. Well said. Um, let, let, I know we want to begin to wrap up, Carrie. You have an event to uh, to go cover, and it, 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 I, I hope that one day you'll be able to take a breath from from this. Maybe when the government's <laughs> formed, and they'll be until until the government infighting begins publicly. What um, do you mean that Netanyahu promised us a stable government for four years? So you're going, where are you going on vacation then? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> this is, this is what we want to know. Um, be, beginning to wrap up, other than Netanyahu, clearly who's, who's made a comeback, who, 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 who did, who, who orchestrated this campaign, I, I suppose, as masterfully as anyone could have uh, under the circumstances, who are the big winners and why? Either of you. The biggest winner is Itamar Benkver. Um, Benkver, whose ideology we haven't really discussed in detail, um, has many points of view that find echoes um, with those held by the late uh, and banned politician um, Mayor Kahana. Uh, Benkver said he wants to deport Israeli citizens who are not loyal to the state. Uh, he wants to deport Arabs who attack IDF soldiers. He wants to loosen uh, open fire rules um, so that IDF soldiers can use live fire in demonstrations. Uh, he wants to create immunity for security personnel in scenarios such as that. Um, Bengvil, who, who did not serve in the military because his views were seen as too extremist when he was 18 years old and wanted to go into the military, might now be our police minister. That's the position he's angling for. And he's allied with Smoltzlich and uh, the Noam party, which have, have definitely avowed homophobic points of view. Again, uh, members of uh, ben Gvir's own Otsma Yodit this week on the radio also expressed uh, homophobic points of view and, and in support of um, 
voluntary conversion therapy uh, mm-hmm. was the way that they put it. Um, so this is very far right ideology that the voters have expressed a preference for. And this party, yes, it was joined with religious Zionism, but this means that Benville, who was stitched into this party by Netanyahu, Netanyahu forced the merger between the three parties. They did not want to ally themselves. Netanyahu wanted to do it because he didn't want to lose any votes under the electoral threshold. He wanted everyone to make it into the Knesset. Ben Gvir was twice stitched in to this by Netanyahu, but before he was stitched in, in 2020, he only won 0.42% of the vote when he ran by himself. He received less than half a percentage of the vote. He did not make it into Knesset by a wide margin. And now today he is seen as the leading figure in the second largest party in the would-be coalition. Um, So I think the real victory has been Itamar Bengvirs. He is able to pull out a gun and go into a residential Palestinian neighborhood in Jerusalem's Flashpoint Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. And on the next morning be interviewed on Israel's second largest TV channel's Friday morning cooking show where he's making his famous stuffed peppers recipe and explaining why he went in to quote, protect Jews. Um, So I think that Itamar Bengvir has been really koshered as a politician by this this process of political expediency. Um, and the question is whether or not him and his ideology will sufficiently mainstream such that they become a legitimate uh, feature of the Israeli political scene, um, such as they were today elected again to be the third largest party in the Knesset and the second uh, largest party right. in a presumed coalition. Right. And because I know you have to go, I want to follow up on that, Dove. I'm going to come back to you. But Carrie, who's the biggest loser? The biggest loser is obviously Maris. They they're a party that's no longer in this coal in the government at all. Uh, sorry, government, the Knesset. They are the not Knesset. Knesset. Uh, the biggest loser is Maris, um, and uh, voters who want sort of a left wing stalwart in Israel's government. Don't have that anymore. Dove, winner, loser. Yeah, so winner, uh, I'm actually going to go do a different approach. I'm going to say it's both the ultra-Orthodox parties, especially Shas, and also anyone who wanted judicial reform. But the reason why I'm saying this is because I don't know how much of Ben Gvir's policies will actually be implemented. I do believe he'll be public security minister, but I think Netanyahu is going to work very, very hard not to have any significant changes. It's not so easy for a minister to change police policy. You'll hear some rhetoric, but I don't know how much can actually get done on that front. The ultra-Orthodox parties, especially Shasta by Aryeh Deri, their battle for what they view as the Jewish identity of Israel, status quo on religious issues, no changes, they don't want to see a progressive liberal agenda, uh, that's all going to be implemented in full. Their communities will get every single thing that they want. And then also there's a significant, of all the parties that want judicial reform, in particular, a vote to enable the Knesset, the parliament, to override decisions that are made by the judges. That's going to be the first thing this government does. So everyone who is in favor of that, uh, is, they're the big winners because they're going to get that ideology in place. And that prevents essentially the, the courts from uh, in any way interfering with those policies which they, which they want to implement. So, with, you know, with for a those 61 who are out- seat majority as compared to what we have in America with a supermajority. Correct. Right? They'll do it with just yeah. a 61. Some people are saying maybe they'll say 63 or 64, but, but <laughs> yeah, but correct. It, it won't be a, a supermajority, that's for sure. Uh, that's step one. Uh, and then, then, like I said, the religious parties for sure are coming in now with a very strong place and will stop any kind of reforms or uh, anything in a progressive nature uh, on the religious side and go back to a strong trad- traditional conservative perspective about Judaism in Israel. Uh, you know, there's no doubt that the Merit Party failing to uh, 
uh, cross is a, is a big failure. But I, I really do, from my perspective, as someone who was in the Ishatid uh, in the beginning, knew where the party was striving towards, I, I do see ultimately Ayer Lapid as the one who lost the most because I, I don't see any, I don't see any scenario where he can ever become prime minister uh, of Israel with a coalition behind him. So he kind of had his four month stint during this election cycle and, and that's pretty much it. So, uh, you know, for someone who built a party, built a party with a goal of leading the country and making significant changes, uh, that's a very, very significant loss uh, for his perspective and the party. So he's plateaued. I do think so. I do think so. I want to pause in the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis 123 Foundation. This year, we have been going out all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed, keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill, they are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash bless a soldier that's genesis 123.co slash bless a soldier and when you do you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people please join us carrie just signed off thank you uh again for carrie joining us um Dove, if you still have some time, I want to jump into some of the questions that others asked. Um, sure. We've I've been trying to weave them in, but a lot there's a and actually you're you're really especially because you were in the Knesset um, and had to give up your U.S. citizenship in order to do so. I'm curious what there's a lot of questions about what are the international foreign foreign relations implications of the presumed government. So it's very interesting. I have to tell you, as someone who grew up in America, um, you know, to hear statements that were made by government officials, possibly, I don't know if they've been made publicly or just behind closed doors, of we're going to boycott certain ministers in the Israeli government. These people are anti-democratic. I, I really troubles me to hear that. I don't know how it could be anti-democratic when they were voted in democratically. Uh, by the people of Israel. It doesn't make any sense to me. What does that mean? It's anti-democratic. People went, they voted, the votes were counted, no one was coerced, and people wanted a certain ideology for Israel. Uh, That troubles me, and I think that those who are watching, especially for the United States, should look out for that and speak out against any leaders who say we're boycotting. I mean, I'll be honest with you, there's no doubt that uh, Israel as a whole uh, you know, certainly benefited a lot, and I'm not getting involved in internal American politics at all, but as a whole, from, from President Trump's term, and there were concerns about President Biden's term, no one thought to boycott anybody uh, because of that. We have a wonderful relationship with the United States, no matter who is in the leadership of either side, but that's something to watch out for. Um, you know, this government will probably um, do more in Judea and Samaria the quote unquote West Bank, as it's called around the world, uh, not take down uh, you know, certain settlements and things like that, uh, outposts. 
uh, I could see an international outcry uh, about that. And again, I think that's a shame that you know, anyone is gonna interfere with what our democratically elected government has done. Uh, you know, I wrote a book uh, last year called Fact Over Fiction. And it was a challenge to President Obama's uh, policies towards Israel, not from a personal attack. I don't get involved in that. I don't call people names, but just from facts, right? And I'd like someone to show me how this land, Judea and Samaria, is quote unquote occupied territory. Where is the legal justification for that sure. terminology? Let's have that discussion. Is it a contested territory? Of course it is. And we have to figure out how to deal with that. But it bothers Israelis, I think, en masse, when we have others from the outside telling us how to govern in our areas. This government was elected democratically. There is going to be a lot of work to be done. The foreign ministry is going to have to do a lot of work. By the way, the person who is being, I think, touted as the foreign minister for Israel is Amir Ohana, who is a member oh, wow. of the Likud party, right wing, and an openly gay member of the Knesset. Let's see people start attacking him. Uh, it's gonna be very interesting. His English is quite good. I think he'll be able to represent Israel very well. And he'll show that side of Israel which people can't get their handle around. One minute, he's right wing. He believes in Judea and Samaria and the, right, and the West Bank being under Israeli control. He believes in judicial reform. And he's also a member of the LGBT community. How are you gonna attack him as being, you know, whatever terminologies people are gonna use so it's going to be interesting to see, but I do anticipate those attacks coming. The very fact that right after the election, people are already talking about boycotting certain ministers gives me a sense that the international community feels, ah, oh, we have our opportunity to attack Israel now, and hopefully they'll recognize this is Israel's democratically elected government, and they should respect that. What? Well, thank you for that. I hadn't heard heard about Amir Ohana. That's actually quite fascinating on a host of levels. What do you say to... Uh... Jews in the diaspora who who tend to be more liberal and uh, religious affiliated with the liberal streams of Judaism who are now concerned that you have, well, de depending on how we divide the parties, but let's just call them as they ran together, three of the four parties that are entering the, presumably entering the government are right religious parties who typically don't have a lot of um, respect for uh, the views of, of uh, liberal streams of Judaism? The first thing which I would say, I do not mean this cynically at all. Uh, I run an organization called Yad Olim. We help immigrants to Israel. We are more than happy to open our arms and anyone who wants to move here Good. has the right of, to come here and become a citizen and vote and have their voice heard. There's a democracy here. And that's really important to emphasize. You can disagree with the government's policies. You can uh, criticize things that you disagree with, but always remember that it's a democratically elected government. There is a reason why Israelis from all walks of life voted for Ben Gvir and what, what's called a radical and extreme party. And that is because they felt that Israel was weakening uh, against terrorism that was happening from without and from within. They want to see a stronger hand uh, against that. Uh, these are not people who are anti-peace. 
all they want to do is live peacefully, but they also believe in what King David said, that God will, in Psalms, that God gives strength to his nation, and then God gives peace to his nation. And we believe that, and these people believe, we, nobody wants our, our sons and daughters to be fighting, and we don't want to have this happening, but they feel that we have to show a certain strength against the terrorists, not against the Arabs, but against the terrorists. And, and Ben Gvir emphasized that point over and over again, that this is what he's trying to fight against. So people who are living here, who are experiencing the terrorism. By the way, there are secular members of Kibbutzim who voted for Ben Gvir because there have been Arab uh, robberies in their oh, yeah. farms and in their Kibbutzim all around Israel. You saw signs for Ben Gvir in secular areas. So what I'm saying is people who are living here voted not based on a radical ideology, but based on what they're experiencing by living here. And hopefully <laughs> even those who are against the government's policies can at least recognize that's why people voted for it because they want to see certain changes in their way of life and their quality of life living here in Israel and feeling unsafe. That's a terribly important clarification. Uh, there, there maybe maybe on the from an American perspective, it's much less gray. There are pretty firm right wing and left wing issues that that galvanize Democrats and Republicans, and for for non Americans and non Israelis. Listening, you'll forgive me for not having an analogy uh, to, to your own countries or, or political systems, but here you can you you actually do see, as you just said, people will vote for a party that is ideologically to the right wing, but but ha- but is um, behind some very important social uh, values and and issues that are essential for for the well being of the people in the country. Um, I want to st- I want to wrap up with you. And because we've I've got another guest to introduce who's been sitting quietly listening um, as we as we conclude a number of the questions focused on what are not not are the religious implications for Jews but what are the religious implications on an end times basis where does this fit into the God's big picture and then specifically people are asking okay this is happening what do we pray for what are your thoughts so, so first of all. Just the very fact that we in Israel went to the polls and voted to determine who our leader would be, as opposed to 2,000 years of exile, when we were begging God to spare us from the czars and the Caesars and the kings, uh, the fact that we are in a position where we have autonomy in our land, uh, that is in and of itself a fulfillment of prophecies. The independence that we are experiencing here and the fact that with God's help, we determine our own future and uh, de- destiny, that's an incredible, incredible thing. And something which, as I voted last Tuesday, I certainly felt the weight of that, that yes. I was part of that remarkable process. Uh, there's no doubt that the results of the elections show that Israel, you know, Israel was founded by people who I revere, revere, and I want to be, I do not want to be misunderstood uh, for the courage and the initiative that they took. But for the most part, they were secular leaders, uh, people who want to see kind of a new Judaism, almost devoid of God in our Declaration of Independence. It doesn't even say God uh, because of that ideology. And now Israel has really shifted over the decades to a point where uh, there's a government which is predominantly religious. Uh, uh, Certainly the country as a whole has shifted to more traditional right wing. If we were writing a Declaration of Independence today, God would be mentioned unabashedly and there would be an overwhelming majority for that. I think that's part of the process also. 
as we come back from 2000 years of exile, find our way in this land, and there's some kind of a return to tradition, whether it's people being religious or just culturally, but either way, there's definitely a, a deeper respect for it. I think that's part of biblical prophecy as well, as we head towards a time where we're more firmly entrenched in our land. And now I'll just put on my religious hat for a moment, nothing to do with politics, um, but the Bible does very much, uh, the Bible that I believe in does condition our survival in this land on our spirituality. It seems to be very clear. That's why we were exiled to begin with. So hopefully that's part of what's happening here as well as we strengthen ourselves here. And uh, you know where it goes to, that's in God's hands. And uh, what people should pray for is uh, the safety of Israel, is wisdom for the leaders of Israel, is um, the, the unity of the people of Israel as we live in a very divisive time. And hopefully we find our way to be a more united people, which is also one of the conditions of our success here. And I just have to say, Jonathan, to you, uh, you know, I, I learned as a member of Knesset uh, about this relationship between uh, the Christian faith and the Jewish faith for Israel. I wasn't aware of it beforehand. Having grown up in the United States of America with you know, neighbors that were certainly Christians and we got along just fine, I understood that we can get along, but this is so much deeper. Uh, then get along. This is a, a pact of people of faith who believe in the word of God. And so much good can come from that. And just the yes. fact that people all around the world support Israel, pray for Israel. I think that's also part of the fulfillment of prophecies wow. and bringing us towards a time of final redemption as we live in a time of reconciliation and peace uh, between the nations and people of God. So uh, I just wanted to express my appreciation to anyone who's listening, uh, who's from the Christian faith, for your support, for your prayers, and hopefully to Together, we can all just light up the world and bring Israel as a light unto the nations to bring faith to more people around the world. Wow. Well, thank you. You know, uh, everything about this program, I think, has been so enlightening. And, and I'm so grateful for you and for, for Carrie, who had to go and go back to work covering uh, something else that we'll read about in the papers tomorrow. Uh, but I also love the fact that this was entirely unrehearsed, unscripted. I didn't give you any questions up front, you or Carrie, and you both spoke with such um, authority and such and complimenting and and uh, not disagreeing, but just elucidating different aspects. And when you and and of course putting your rabbi hat on, it wasn't so difficult to uh, to give you a nice religious softball question um, toward the end. But really, thank you, thank you both uh, for for joining us. Um, and with that, and it's also a great setup. Um, it's really a privilege to introduce Pastor Robbie Coleman. Um, he's become a good friend over the last couple of years. He's with a ministry that he's the founder and president of, Zion's Bridge, um, that that I relate to because he does so much from a Christian perspective of what I do from a Jewish perspective. And and I asked uh, Pastor Pastor Robbie to come on and kind of close us out. And as we like to do specifically in the webinar series to close us out in prayer. Jonathan, I do appreciate listening to these two speakers. Uh, do not know Carrie, uh, but felt that she gave a very good points of view tonight. Dove Lip, Lipman, I have uh, known of for many years, and it was nice to hear him tonight. I um, I do hope that your viewing audience will support your efforts. Yes, we do the similar 
thing. Uh, I work on the evangelical Christian side and I raise finances, I raise awareness and, but I can tell you, I don't, I don't, I don't work as hard on my side as you do on your side. John. <laughs> uh, you know, I get so many emails from you. I, I could use eight hours a day up just following up on all, all of that you're uh, launching. So thank you for what you're doing. And, and please, if you're listening and you, be, you believe in uh, Israel, you believe in, in Zionism, you believe in Christianity and believe that we are to be one. I, I want to encourage you. Um, I was thinking during this, Jonathan, I've done a lot of things together, but I don't, I don't know that I've ever given you a direct offering, but um, I want, I want to make a donation um, this, this week, early in this week toward uh, Genesis one, two, three, Jonathan. Now I, I learned, I, I learned a lot tonight, but I want to tell you the biggest thing I learned, Jonathan, and then I'll pray. The biggest thing I learned was coming to Israel. I know there's kosher restaurants, I have actually learned there's kosher, kosher refrigerators. I even heard a lady buy, buy a kosher phone, telephone. <laughs> okay. That, I, I, I don't know how that can be. But Carrie used a term tonight that must be a misnomer. She, she referred to a, one politician and said he was a kosher politician. I don't know how that could be. We don't have any of those in the U.S., I can tell you. But, uh, okay, let me pray. Father, I come to you tonight, and I thank you for the privilege to to listen to this dialogue and uh, these these three that have so much input. They all care so much about Israel. And as Dove said, Rabbi Dove said just recently, it's such a miracle that we can even sit here and debate political issues when we think about 2,000 years of tyranny, 2,000 years of leadership that we had nothing in common with, and it was pushed upon this country, this nation. I thank you for that. I pray for Israel. You told me, you've told all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, to pray for the peace of Israel, the peace of Jerusalem. And I do that tonight, and I do so in the name of Hashem. And I pray for all that this country and its leadership and the new leadership that's taking power now, bless them as you have done for many, many years. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. To everyone who's been following and listening and joining us, please continue to join Inspiration from Zion, our podcasts, our webinar series, and uh, and all the other programs of the Genesis 1, 2, 3. Wherever you are in the world, just pray that you and your loved ones are all healthy. And I send my blessings to you from right here. You can't see it behind me, but I'm in the Judean mountains just south of Jerusalem. God bless you and thank you all. So if you've stayed with us this long, you always deserve a reward. This is a long conversation, but really in-depth. And this month, we're giving away a special book, which we always call this year From Jonathan's Bookshelf. If you 
have been following us in the past, you know that all you need to do is go to the Inspiration from Zion social media and like and follow us. And when you comment and share the link to this program, we will select one person at random. And this month, we have a fabulous book. It's not specifically relating to Israel and politics, but it's certainly to the Jewish history and restoration of Jewish sovereignty here in the land. It's called The Book of Jewish Knowledge. It's an, got incredible content and, and depth, along with stunning pictures and graphs. You are going to want to have this for your own home. We are always grateful that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're ever in the area, please pop in and thank them for helping make programs like this possible. Also, special thanks to our friends, the Coyne family, for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations, so please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build the bridges. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. By full disclosure, this podcast originated as a webinar, and a number of the followers of the webinar were great supporters and are very excited for the return of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and kind of came together in a very uh, haphazard way to donate on the, in the honor of, of the restoration of President uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu coming to power, and we are we are dedicating this episode in his honor. What a privilege! We love to hear any comments that you have as part of a dialogue, and invite you to send any questions as well, especially if you have about religious Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi program. Please share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you. Hallelujah, al-Mashiach.